Welcome to the new wave post-punk security hour. You may know Berlin best from their song Metro, but today I'm thinking of their hit Take My Breath Away, which also appears on the Top Gun soundtrack along with Kenny Loggins' Danger Zone. And if there were ever two song titles that captured the essence of risk management and application security, those are surely near the top. Which means this week we talk with Carolyn Wong from Cobalt about the tolerance and transfer of risk and what that means for your supply chain and your secure code. In the news segment, Jupiter pulls a few too many Azure DBs into orbit. OpenSSL pulls a few too many strings. Bumble pulls up a little too close. Cloud security pulls out a map of the terrain and more. Grab some Ray-Bans and stay tuned for Application Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly. For security professionals, by security professionals. It's the show to learn the latest tools, techniques, and processes necessary to understand DevOps, application security, and cloud security. Your trusted source for the latest application security news. It's time for Application Security Weekly. In any business today, there comes a moment, the moment you realize you can secure the code as fast as you write it. Instead of testing everything, you can just test the right things. It's not about tools, but intelligent risk management. That's the moment you choose Synopsys. Build secure, high quality software faster. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash Synopsys. We discuss application security a lot on this show, and we know that the implications for code security have become even greater as cloud adoption accelerates software development. Shift Left bridges the gap between security teams and developers to find and fix vulnerabilities accurately from the source. Shift Left Core is an innovation in code security with industry-leading accuracy and speed. It combines next-generation static code analysis, intelligent software composition analysis, secrets detection, security insights, and contextual developer security education in one one easy-to-use platform. Learn more and create your free, yes, free account at securityweekly.com forward slash shift left. This is episode 164, like the Commodore, recorded August 30th, 2021. I'm your host, Mike Shima, and I'm here with John Kinsella. Hello, Mr. Kinsella. I am not coming to you on a Commodore this week. <laughs> Dropping down to Vic 20. Let's see. Um, let's see. What else could we do? We could also say if you missed any of our previously recorded witty banter, just like that you witnessed just now, uh, or if you want to look look at our uh, webcasts and technical trainings, they are in fact available for your viewing pleasure at securityweekly.com/slash/on-demand. Carolyn Wong is the Chief Strategy Officer at Cobalt. As CSO, Carolyn leads the security, community, and people teams. She brings to the role a proven background in communications, cybersecurity, and experience delivering global programs. Carolyn's close and practical information security knowledge stems from her broad experience as a digital consultant, a Symantec product manager, and day-to-day -day leadership roles at eBay and Zynga. Carolyn also hosts the Humans of InfoSec podcast. Go check it out. She teaches cybersecurity courses on LinkedIn Learning and has authored the popular textbook, Security Metrics, A Beginner's Guide. Hello, Carolyn. Thank you for joining us. Hi. I'm just, you know, messing around with the unmute button. Um, it is my <laughs> pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Messing around with the unmute button sounds like a perfect on theme for risk tolerance or uh, maybe a risk transfer. I'm not sure which, but um, you've joined us today to talk about risk, risk. avoidance. Risk avoidance. There we go. 
<laughs> Excellent metaphor and, and real-time lesson. One of the aspects of this, too, is we, we were kind of chatting before this about what is risk tolerance? What is risk transfer? What is risk avoidance? It, is it comes out of, I think, part of a, dis a couple aspects of a discussion. One is just how do you start with the security? And I, to me, I think more importantly, how do we avoid doing what probably hasn't been working for the last 20 years in the sense of security coming over to the DevOps team or the dev team and saying, hey, here's a bunch of vulns, go fix your stuff, and then walking away. Doesn't seem like a very constructive, collaborative approach. So um, let's, let's start to talk about some of that risk and risk tolerance, risk avoidance, risk transfer. What, what does that mean to make, or how can we use that to make these conversations a bit more constructive and richer conversations with DevOps teams? So the place that I come from uh, and where my, uh, where my perspective got developed, I used to work on the eBay global information security team, and we would find all these bugs. We would do pen testing. We would do scanning. We would get, re we, we would get reports from third-party uh, security researchers, uh, and we would take these piles of bugs, and we would go to the developer development teams and say, please fix these. Uh, and mostly, the response we would get is, we have really important things to do, uh, and it's not what you're asking us to do, security people. Um, and so, what I have spent a lot of time thinking about is how does a security leader get funding and investment for an application security program? And there's different components to this. There's a headcount component. Certainly, there's an expenses component. And absolutely, there is a stakeholder buy-in and activity component. Um, in a lot of cases, security folks can go and find all the flaws and bugs that they want to, but those issues are not going to get addressed unless someone in a different role actually decides to do something about it. Um, and I think that the concept of risk tolerance is so interesting. You know, um, I went on a bike ride with my family yesterday, and we happen to be the type of family where we're very, for the most part, strict about you've got to wear your helmet. Um, and this is an example of a personal risk tolerance decision. Um, and there's all sorts of reasons why people might decide not to wear a bicycle helmet. You know, maybe you're just biking around in your own neighborhood and you're a super strong bicyclist, um, but maybe you're biking on a mountain that you've never been to before and you're just an amateur. You know, there are all of these different uh, factors that might influence your decision. And so, when it comes to organizations and the technology they choose to use and the type of business they choose to run on that software, as well as all the decisions they're making about, are we testing our software? Are we inventorying our software? What are we doing about the problems that we find? Are we addressing those problems? An organization has a risk tolerance regardless of whether it's being talked about or not. Uh, and I do think that the primary job of information security professionals, of application security professionals, it is our job 
to try and manage risk. Um, and so I think that there's a conversation that cannot just happen within an application security team. It's got to take place with decision makers, uh, with folks who are going to be taking the action required. Um, and it unfortunately can't be as simple as, hey, boss, how's your risk tolerance feeling today on a scale of one to 10? Um, it, it's it's really a different discussion. Um, and I think that um, when we as security folks are able to have this discussion more effectively, um, then frankly, we're just going to get a lot more money and people and investment in our programs. Hey, more money. That sounds, I don't, I don't think too many people would object to that. And the, what I think is that you're one of the key ask points that I think you're getting, getting there is the idea of context, the idea of moving beyond just this is an OWASP top 10 entry. Here's a CVSS score for this particular vuln. It sounds like you're describing more about when risk tolerance or just what is the risk and, and how should we prioritize what to fix is, well, what's the context here? How does this particular vuln relate to this application? What kind of business impact might it potentially have? Things like that. So that does sound to me, though, that you actually have to become a bit more expert, not so much on the OWASP top 10 to beat up on that a little bit, but on what the business is actually building. So what are some ways that you've seen, whether at eBay or, or elsewhere, um, that the security teams come in and have good conversations to build that context so that they can say, uh, ha have a bit more informed uh, opinion about what that risk tolerance is, let alone just what the uh, app, app inventory might be? So I do have a recommendation which is, I do think that a lot of technical security folks have a tendency to focus on technical security vulnerabilities and all of their inner workings. Um, I think that it's in our best interest to spend as much time as we spend on learning about sort of like all the ins and outs of the latest breach and exactly how it happened and all the different software versions and the vulnerabilities and all of that investment in of our time that we make to learn about those things, there's an opportunity to go and watch your company's latest earnings call. There's an opportunity to attend your company all hands and really understand what are the business objectives. Because I think ultimately... Security is about protecting value. And I think that we as security professionals have an opportunity to do our job the very best that we can if we have an in-depth understanding of how that value is created. Um, I, I think that, you know, part of my perspective on this comes from, uh, in particular, a few years uh, when I was at Sigital, which later got acquired by Synopsys. And during that time, that was really my sort of first foray into application security. So the first half of my career, I had really been on the GRC side of the house. And then when I started at Sigital, and in particular, when I began to lead BSIM assessments, I, I began to think of these frameworks in a different way you know, um, there's this term best practices and like, what even is a security best practice? You know, we've got a number of different regulations and frameworks. And a lot of these things say you should blah, 
you should use multi-factor authentication. You should patch vulnerabilities. These are all definitely good ideas. I'm not saying that they're not. But what's interesting to me about, about these um, and to some extent something like the OWASP Top 10 is just like you mentioned, Mike, it's lacking context. So, you know, I could take sort of my super basic shoulds and say, here are some security best practices. You should go and do these things. Um, one of the cool things about BSIM actually is that whereas a lot of best practices frameworks are prescriptive, the BSIM is actually descriptive. It's actually an observable model. Um, and so what I think is cool about this is there's a difference between saying you should brush your teeth. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then actually, like, mm -hmm. is a person actually doing it? And so the cool thing about BSIM is that it's observable. I think that when it comes to risk management, however, like doing risk management well absolutely includes knowing the context of your specific organization. Um, so, for example, I want to share a few uh, risk management objectives. Uh, these I discovered through conversations with a very good friend and uh, mentor of mine, Sammy Miguez. Um, so one of them is, what if we got together as security folks and business leadership folks, and we said, look, we want to prevent the same cybersecurity problems from happening over and over again. Um, this requires context. So for example, is is your organization even mature enough to know if the same types of issues keep showing up? Do you even have reliable defect discovery uh, processes in place? And do you have uh, tracking and reporting for those findings? You know, another another uh, risk management objective uh, that, that one of us might propose uh, in order to um, drive a risk tolerance discussion might be something like, we want to reduce the probability that malicious attackers can stop critical systems and applications from functioning. So there's, again, a bunch of contextual factors here. Do, do you even know which systems and processes are critical to your organization? I was just about to again, ask that question, yeah. Yeah, again, do you, do you have defect discovery processes? And then do you know what kind of attacker is most likely to target your organization? You know, and there's, we could kind of go on and on, but those are just a couple of uh, examples where context is really key. I think that, you know, um, it is a mistake for any security person to go in and give a recommendation or ask for something without having some of the appropriate context. Yeah, I think a lot of what you've been describing, too, in, in ways of getting context about the business, working with the product teams, listening to earnings reports, things like that. Uh, I'm going to take us on a shift, though, to perhaps a place where it's harder to get context, potentially. And that's where I'm going with that is supply chain, because that still mm -hmm. is obviously incurring a risk and you can still make decisions on a vuln, perhaps, but uh, I, I think there's also an element of risk transfer that may be perhaps unintentional um, or perhaps intentional in the sense of we don't want to write some new code to, to execute some basic function and repeat what's already been built. That's what I'm trying to go for there. So we're going to use this third parties, you know, this open source package um, and supply chain. And of course, in 2021, supply chain is, you know, on everybody's uh, bingo cards for the year. And I think that ties into to that aspect of risk tolerance or maybe risk, let's call it risk management because i think 
What we're not talking about is a perfectly secure environment. We're talking about how well do you understand and have a comfort level in your environment. So what? with that said, um, there's my opening preamble, Your Honor. Uh, you know, how have you seen this type of approach applied to supply chain discussions? And here I'm thinking more about, less about the technical sides of things and more about the, uh, maybe the people and the, the process aspects, because a lot of what you've been describing as well aren't just, well, uh, asset inventory perhaps is go out, scan, or do something to discover. But a lot of what you're describing is actually conversations with people, building those relationships. So how, how does that fit in with supply chain? So first, I want to just really acknowledge that supply chain is super hard, right? If you are an organization that was using Kaseya or SolarWinds and their update servers got hacked and then you were trying to do the right thing and update and patch your you know, version of their software, like that's, that's tough to avoid, that is risk that is difficult to manage. Um, I don't have any silver bullet answers here. However, uh, I do have some perspectives to share. Um, one of them is to ask yourself, do I, like, who's better at doing this thing? Am I better at doing it because I have control? Or is it actually a better idea for someone else to do it? So um, a really simple example is I actually recently, as a side hobby, started my own online crystal shop and I use Etsy. Um, and because I use Etsy, I also don't have to collect anyone's, you know, payment information. Um, I just use PayPal, Square, you know, whatever integrations there exist. And I think that in a lot of cases, you know, an online retailer, an online e-commerce shop, um, it's generally, I think, going to be in their best interest not to manage the whole collection and protection of payment data directly themselves. That's, that's probably a good thing to outsource to someone like a Square who, like, that's what they're all about. They're, they're just really good at that. Um, and so there is kind of this judgment call, like who can protect this data better, me or this other person? Do I trust myself to do it or do I trust them to do it better? And this is really tough because you do kind of give up that aspect of control. I mean, a, a silly but physical analogy is like, if I'm flying from Portland to San Francisco, like... I'm going to manage my risk by having like professional pilot fly the plane that I'm sitting in. And I'm just going to like sit myself in that passenger seat. I'm not interested in like having the control over my destiny of, of being the person flying that plane. I think, um, you know, that, that, that would be silly. <laughs> so it's, um, it's, it's not easy. And I think, um, I think sometimes it's more straightforward than others. I do wonder a little bit I do wonder a little bit about how we as security professionals can sort of leverage this dependency that we all have on each other to try and get everyone's security to be better because that's in all of our best interest. And so I don't know if that is 
more severe fines and penalties for organizations that make software that other organizations are highly dependent upon. Um, I don't know to what extent we can try and make any sort of security control mandatory. You know, I've wondered to myself, is the place where this mandatory security control thing comes from actually cyber insurance? I don't think that's actually correct, but it's, I think it's an interesting thought path, which is to say, what if, you know, and I think this happens to some extent today, in order to purchase cybersecurity insurance, or maybe your rate changes depending on uh, your, your controls, you know, that are tested and audited and, and proven to some extent. Um, that's one thing. The other thing that I wonder about is sort of like a socks for security, right? So when, when socks was introduced, um, before that, uh, you could say probably there was a lot more financial fraud going on. And then post, you know, SOX implementation, probably a lot less. Um, I wonder when something like that is coming, you know, if you're a so, public so company. I, yeah, I, I would say, so you're going on there and I'm curious too, because you've, you're hitting that aspect of supply chain of risk transfer or, or, you know, moving to the supply chain of services and data handling. And a lot of, you, you've switched definitely on to how could we basically make it better? What are the things that might drive incentives? Mm-hmm. Because I think on the other side of the the, the coin of that at the very beginning, I, I'm, I, you probably didn't, you know, as an individual, send Etsy a uh, vendor security questionnaire to say, hey, what are you doing with your security so that I can uh, be, be reliant on trusting you with my, my online shop, even though that's what, you know, companies, you know, B2B companies do all the time. Fill out this vendor security questionnaire and tell me, give me your last report of and uh, or last attestation and we'll go from there. That seems like that's what people do as perhaps not a best practice, but a practice that we'll do because everybody else does it. But maybe it's not really getting us where we need to be going. Yeah, I do think that there is an opportunity when it comes to how do we negotiate these transactions and these relationships. Um, And part of it has to do with power, you know, as sort of a little small business on Etsy, you know, it's not as though I have a ton of leverage uh, to say, you know, what are your security practices, let alone I demand these sort of security practices. Um, But there are going to be folks uh, who do have leverage. You know, when we're talking about B2B and a large enterprise company, you know, asking a software firm for their vendor security and then finding out that they're not satisfied with it and demanding it in that case, there actually is a lot of power and leverage to get things to change. Um, and so I think that's going to be really interesting to observe as time goes on. How, how, how might these dependencies between organizations and the fact that we're just so darn reliant on each other, how might that make some of this basic security stuff that we know actually mandatory, actually required. Um, you know, Mike, when we were uh, prepping for this call, one of the things that we talked about is ransomware. And one of the funny things, I think it's funny, 
uh, if you go and you talk to, you know, mainstream media, go and talk to CSNBC, you know, they, what they want to know is like, oh, what's happening with ransomware and how can we, what are we going to do about it? And it's like, we actually know exactly what to do about it. You just need to track your inventory. You need to patch and update your software and you need to have backups that work. You know, those things are not rocket science. Those things are known. They're fairly basic. The problem is that they're boring. The problem is that they're not shiny. They're not sexy and they don't get yeah, prioritized. Exactly. And so and so this is something that I I wonder about, you know, how 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 do we get to a state where the behavior of individuals changes such that this maybe a little bit boring but also super important basic security controls actually get done yeah i so think you were speaking, talking oh go ahead john yeah speaking of security controls um we got two listener questions um first one's a, a listener that happens to actually be within the security weekly family of employees and they want to know what your etsy link is <laughs> oh my gosh so like is it weird that i don't even know so my shop is called <laughs> magical fern crystals okay and Sounds like I'm going to have too. a new moon sale. So whereas like everyone else in the United States, I think is like having a Labor Day sale. I'm having a new moon sale. So keep an eye out. Magical fern crystals. Because I, like you, John, live in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and there just are like tons of ferns. So just have to be part of the enchanted forest. <laughs> um, and then the second question. So, you know, it's, it's your... Your background at Citadel and and um, drinking the uh, the Beesim Kool Aid. It's a good good flavored Kool Aid, but you've you've drank totally. it. Totally. You're you're you're, um, you're sort of exuding it, and one of our listeners sort of recognized that. And I'm not sure if they joined late, but they're like, she really into this. So the question is, do you think if more organizations actually started adopting Beesim, um, that this would be beneficial for everyone? How how would that affect? Um, you know, we're talking about controls and, and, you know, so this is a more geeky, nerdy control, which probably not going to be on CNBC anytime too soon. But <laughs> do you think the results of that going to be worthwhile? You know, I really like BSIM. I think that it would be an amazing first step if every organization did the most common activity in each domain. There are 12 domains. And in each of those domains, there is a most commonly observed activity. Now, my, my perspective on the biggest weakness of BSIM is simply that the data set is what it is. And while I think it's something at any given point in time, like 100 or so organizations, which is pretty sweet, they're also self-selected. Um, if you're going to be part of the official BSIM data pool, then you need to have an official BSIM done, which means you have to pay for an official BSIM. Right. Um, but that being said, I think that a lot of the organizations who self-select into that data pool have relatively high application security maturity. So, um, yes, I'm a huge BSIM fan. It, like any model, is not perfect. Um, but I do think that... If folks decided that they wanted to, to like every software company in the world, do those 12 most common activities, one per domain, that would be pretty sweet. 
Do you think there's an aspect there, too, of, as, as you mentioned, BSIM tends to be much more descriptive rather than prescriptive as something like the, the OWASP SAM might be. Um, but with that said, you also meant, you know, we're talking about incentives. And I think uh, on the developer's perspective, no developer is angling for a um, promotion or going to get recognition for doing the boring work, I think, as you rightly put it, of just application inventory, something like that. Um, they're working on features. They're shipping something new, something in the context of the business. So is there, you know, as you're looking at these 12 domains, are there things that you think uh, could get better traction that could help inform, drive those incentives? So the, on the dev side, the engineering side, we can get towards better inventories or better practices that we'd actually like to see to help this ecosystem. So that's tough. I would say that some of our historical approaches have not worked. Specifically, <laughs> when security so. stands in the way and says, I am a gate. Until you do A and B and C, thou shalt not pass. Um, that, I feel like, doesn't work super well because then people just go around. Um, it's a super interesting question. I mean, I think that, you know, I've talked to folks about, does it make sense for engineering and development leadership and engineers to have some sort of a security criteria on their performance evaluation. Like, what are the things that drive behavior? I think people's bonuses and their performance evaluations drive behavior. Um, and that really comes down to sort of what do the decision makers value? What does the person who's determining your salary and your bonus value in terms of the work that you do? Um, so I do think there is sort of a higher up sort of executive level decision making uh, type of decision that's got to be made. I'm going to say something awkward because this is live. Are we going for longer? I thought we were done like three minutes ago. Oh, we this, this are is actually just... now 90 minutes. <laughs> it's called risk tolerance now. No, I think this is possibly a great segue, Caroline. Sorry to, to put us on the spot or put you on the spot for, for doing that. Um, what does the future hold for you? What, you know, as, as we, we, can, we can wrap up here and be uh, kind to your uh, uh, time here. Because uh, you mentioned, no, yeah, I wish to, I, I'm enjoying this so much. I wish okay. I wish it were sixty or ninety minutes on my calendar. What does the future hold for Caroline? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna be selling a bunch of crystals. Um, but in addition to my very quirky side hobby, um, you know, I I want to see some change in this industry. Right? We're gonna have the 2021 version of the OWASP Top Ten come out. I think like a month from now. It would be so cool if it weren't basically the same as the one that we mm -hmm. published in 2003, which to me uh -huh. means that, you know, for literally almost two decades now, can I even do basic math? I'm not sure. But for a long time, we as an industry, we know how to find these things. We know how to fix these things. We know how to prevent these things. And yet they persist and not in a good like feminism type of way. Um, so to me, that means that whatever we as an industry have been trying, it's like not working. We have to do something different. I do think that the solution is people and process, um, which I could go on and on and on about. Um, but that's, you know, in my lifetime, I want to see a different OWASP top 10. And I want it to be different, not just because <laughs> somebody decided to make it different. I want it to be different because we solve some of these problems. That's what I would like my future to be. 
No, that, that's a great, I, just a big old plus one to that. And um, nevertheless, I hope you continue to persist on the Humans of InfoSec podcast and uh, driving home these messages for the community so we can actually get a new OWASP top 10 because we've actually solved something more fundamental. So uh, thanks very much for joining us, Caroline. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks again. Thanks to John as well. And thanks to everybody who was hanging out on Discord and uh, listening to us as we're doing this live. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll return with news of the week. 